So my goal this morning is, um, is to kind of screw in what we've been learning through our series in 1 Peter. Uh, what we've been learning in 1 Peter is that we are exiles, and yet we're still a part of this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. And so we've looked at our identity in Christ, and then as a result of figuring out what our identity is in Christ, then we begin to now un- unpack how the implications of that start to play out in our everyday conduct. And so the whole idea of First Peter is, is we're trying to, to really see how, how do we as Christians live uh, such extraordinary lives that it demands an explanation in a culture that is contrary to us as we're on the fringes of society. How do we live uh, in a way that it stands out to the people around us? And I believe that one of the major things within uh, our culture here is that we have this this desire for leisure. We have this desire for rest in the Australian culture, much more than other cultures in the world. The Americans have this, this insatiable appetite for glory. That's me. That's my culture. We want to be, you know, we want to be the, the rulers. We want to be the, you can do anything that you want to do if you put your mind to it. And, you know, uh, whereas here in Australia, we cut that mentality right off in the tall poppy syndrome. And instead, we have this, this desire for rest and leisure uh, much like the Epicureans, the, Rome, the Roman Grecos were the glory cultures, they wanted to be like the gods, and the Epicureans were, were the leisure culture, they wanted to rest and, and, and peace. And, and so I believe that as we dig in, though it's not First Peter, as we dig in and we see what it means to live in freedom, in true freedom, that we will live counterculturally to the rest of our world that's searching for freedom and peace and rest, that ultimately we believe can only be found in Jesus. And to do this, we're going to look at a passage in Galatians, Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. And I've labeled this, I've titled this sermon, Ishmael people and Isaac people. And the text is interesting to say the least. Paul Paul the apostle is going to be using some complicated and some would even say convoluted arguments against his opponents in these verses. He's going to dip way back into some biblical history uh, and he's going to be using an allegory or an illustration of some of the spiritual truths that are very meaningful for our lives. And so on that note, will you join with me and pray as we ask for the Lord to illuminate and re- give, give us revelation as we look at these truths. So let's pray. God, we do uh, stand before you and ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say. And we pray that we would be transformed, that there would be revelation that wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it would be a revelation that would then work its way out of our lives, God. And that we then would, God, go into our culture and and, and make a difference, God. And so start with us, God. Do a work in our hearts, we pray. And I pray that uh, nothing that's unhelpful would be said, but all that you would want to say to your church, that you would use me as your instrument for your name's sake and for your glory. And we ask this in your strong name. Amen. God helps those that help themselves. You've heard it, right? God helps those that help themselves. That's right, isn't it? No. Well, I got one no. It's, it's not right. It's just something that your grandmama tells you to get something done when you're a little kid. Hey, go do this. God helps those that help themselves. 
It's not true. It's not in the Bible. It's a misunderstanding of God and how he works among his people. There's many misunderstandings of God and how he works among his people, and one is this. God helps those that help themselves. Another misunderstanding of God is this one. God is a negotiator. We realize that we haven't quite measured up, but we're pretty confident we can broker a deal with God. We can negotiate a deal with God. That that God will overlook our shortcomings and bless us. And we find ourselves doing this all the time with God. God, I will try harder, do more, be better if you will, dot, dot, dot. We do this as Christians because of our false concept of God as a negotiator. And non-believers do this also in this particular area. They think that they'll one day stand before God as judge, and they'll say, well, I did these good things. I know I did these bad things too, but, but the good kind of, you know, outweighs the bad, yeah? Because popularly, people view God as a negotiator. And again, even with us. With Christians, we we deal with God as if he's a negotiator. It's a false concept of God. Another false concept of God is God as Santa Claus. Uh, This is popular in culture that, yeah, God doesn't like sin, but he's not overly concerned about it. He's kind of like a grandfatherly figure, like Santa Claus, a big white beard. And at the end of the day, he's going to bless me. Because I'm as deserving as anyone, really. Uh, I mean, who really got coal in their stockings, right? Santa Claus always came through with the goods. It's another misconception of God. Another one is God as a cop. That cop that's in your rearview mirror, you're nervous, you, you can barely drive, you know that he's out to bust you. You all know what it's like. You know, when, when the cop pulls up behind you and you see him, you're wondering, oh no, is my car registered? Is my taillight fixed? Did I break some law? He's just, he wants to bust me. He's just out to get me. Do I even have my license on me? All these things go through your mind when you see that guy in your rearview mirror. And for some of us, God feels like that cop. Always looking just to pounce on us, just to bust us. And so we're always trying to get our stuff in order. It's a misunderstanding of God. Another one is God as boss. We've all had bosses where we realize that if we do our job, we do it well, we do it in a timely manner, he's going to be cool with us. She's going to be cool with us. But if we don't, we're going to be in danger of losing something. A lot of Christians think this about God. Okay, I've got to do A, B, C, and D, and then God will be cool with me. But if I don't, God's upset and is going to take something from me that I want or that I need or that I'm trying to get. God is a cop. God is a boss. All these misconceptions, God is a negotiator, God is Santa Claus, they're misunderstandings of God. And now, in light of the popular saying that God helps those that help themselves, we come to another misunderstanding of God, and that is God as a mere collaborator. God as a mere collaborator. Okay, God, you do a little bit, and I'll do a little bit. 
because you help those that help themselves. So I'm hearing that you want to get this done, and so I'm going to get her done. I'm going to pull my boots up, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get it done. Now, I want to preface this because parts of the Christian life, there is a collaboration between us and the Lord. There's things that God calls us to partner with him in. For instance, we're to be co-laborers with God in his mission. Starting this church, as an example, it didn't just, and it popped up, right? It took work and effort. God was doing the work. We were partnering with God in it. And it's, it's kind of like what Paul says, I labor more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And so there, there are areas in our life where we are to collaborate. And so that's why I say mere collaborating, only collaboration. There's certain ways that we partner with God, but not when it comes to salvation or our relational standing with God. There's no partnership. There's no collaboration. And that's the issue here in Galatia. This was the folly and the error that Paul would seem to say even the horror of what was going on in Galatia. Yes, they would say it's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, but I still need to do good things to be in God's good graces. Because after all, God helps those that help themselves. He's a collaborator. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but here's what I'll bring to the table. We do this so often with the Lord. Possibly in more subtle ways than circumcision, which was what the issue was here in Galatia. I don't think any of us do that necessarily. But we do it nonetheless in other ways, more subtle ways. Now, Paul's going to argue against this error as he does through the entire book of Galatians. And he's going to be doing it in our text this morning by going back to Abraham, the father of the faith. And he's going to argue for some, from some of Abe's experiences that we have nothing, get that, nothing to add to what God has done for us in the finished work of the cross. I'm reading the New Living Translation today because it's a difficult text to understand and just for simplification, I'm reading the New Living Translation. I think that Jack might have that translation up. Starting in verse 21, Paul's arguing against them and he says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a Get this, human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as, get this, God's own fulfillment to his promise. Here's what's going on. We know from the book of Genesis that Abe didn't have any children. And that his wife was barren and he was 75 years old and this was a problem. Abe was lamenting to God. He's saying, God, you know, the children of my servants are going to be my heir. What are you going to do about it, God? I don't have any heir. In that culture, much like in our culture, that was a significant issue. And so the Lord uh, 
said to Abe, I've got a plan. I've got a plan for you, Abe. I'm going to make your descendants numerous. Not only numerous, but as numerous as the stars of the sky. I know you're 75, but I'm going to cause nations to come out of you, Abraham. And in particular, the nation from which the Savior of the world would be born. And it tells us in Genesis, when Abe heard that from God, that he believed God. And then God accredited it to Abraham as righteousness. And so God said, I'll give you children to Abraham. And then what happens? 11 years is what happens. 11 years passes from, the year, from Abraham's age of 75 to 86. And that's all that happens is time passes. 11 years And at 86, Abraham's wondering, how is God going to fulfill his promise to me? Maybe God needs my help, right? Maybe God needs my help. And so I'm assuming he's discussing this with Sarah, his wife who's barren and is 85 years old. And Sarah comes up with this idea. And she says, I know, Abe. Why don't you have sex with my servant, Hagar? Gentlemen, this is one of those rare times in life that you say no to your wife. I will not have sex with your servant. But, De- but Abe did. He had sex with Hagar, and they had a son, and this son was given the name Ishmael. So Ishmael was born, and we know from Genesis that this was not what God intended. God did not want to be a collaborator with Abe, but rather he wanted to be a gracious giver. You hear that? God did not want to be a collaborator with Abraham. He wanted to be a gracious giver. So God told Abe, "Uh uh-uh, that's not it, Abe. Then finally, when Abe was 100 years old, God miraculously causes his 99-year-old wife, Sarah, to fall pregnant. Now, you know it's a miracle when they're that old, right? And they have a son, and they give the son the name Isaac. And so Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, verse 23, was a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, collaboration. Isaac, the latter part of verse 23, was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise, a gracious gift. And so the folly of the Galatians and and the folly of us is that they were relying on their own effort to relate to God rather than relying on God's effort for us to bring us into relationship with him. In other words, I will be good so God will treat me good collaboration, own efforts. And according to Galatians, that's folly according to the message of the cross. So Isaac then was the result of God's sovereign work, and Ishmael was the result of a false perception of God as a collaborator. Isaac was entirely God's doing, but Ishmael was the result of Abraham's doing. Where Isaac was a gift according to grace, Ishmael was a proverbial work of the flesh. So what Paul is teasing out of the text is this contrast between self-reliance 
and God-reliance. Self-reliance and God-reliance when it comes to our relational standing with Him. So then, Ishmael and Isaac come to represent two different ways of relating to God. The Ishmael way or the Isaac way. The way of the law or the way of grace. The way of the flesh or the way of the spirit. The way of seeing God falsely as a mere collaborator or the way of seeing God rightly as sovereign, gracious giver. So I'd like to ask you guys the question. When it comes to your relational standing with God, is it based on self-reliance or God-reliance? In verse 24, Paul's going to be talking to us now about these guys' moms. I call it the yo mama section. Hagar, the slave, and Sarah, the wife, are going to serve as illustrations of the two primary covenants in Scripture, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. The covenant of law, which we've been saved from, and the covenant of grace, which we've been saved by. Let's look at this illustration of the two covenants. Verse 24, it says, These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth, break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. Okay, here's the breakdown of what's happening here. Paul brings up Hagar, right? The slave that Abe had Ishmael with and says that Hagar the slave is representative, a type of, an illustration of Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? God gave the law to Moses and Moses gave the law to the people. And then the people were to obey the law. So Hagar, the slave, is a picture of Mount Sinai, which is a picture of the covenant of the law or works. In other words, anything you're going to get from God, you've got to earn. Which is a picture, Paul says, of Jerusalem, the center for the old way of relating to God. The old way to re relating to God according to our merit which he goes on to then say is slavery. So Hagar is a picture of Mount Sinai, which is a picture of the Old Covenant, which is a picture of Jerusalem, which is a picture of religion that is enslaved by the law. And all that means slavery. In juxtaposition to that, we have Sarah, who is the free woman, who represents the covenant of grace by which we are saved, who represents the new Jerusalem, which is not only eschatological and future reality, but it's, it's, it's a current reality. It's a present reality of our ability to freely dwell with God through being united with Christ. And this all represents freedom. Christian freedom. I love that 
This morning we started with that song, Lord, I Need You. It talks about freedom and peace, and then Ruth gets up here and shares a prayer about freedom and peace. I love how the Lord does that. What is Christian freedom? The reality that we have been set free from having to perform well according to the law to be accepted by God. That is Christian freedom. It's the reality that we've been set free from having to perform according to the law to be accepted by God. We're now accepted by God's own fulfillment of his promise in the person of Jesus Christ, dying in our place on the cross, rising to new life to give us brand new life, and thus bringing us into a love affair with God. by which then we are able to enjoy God. So then Paul is teasing out this idea that there are two ways to relate to God. The path represented by Hagar and the path represented by Sarah. And so correspondingly, there's two sorts of people, as we've already said. Children of Hagar, Ishmael people, and children of Sarah, Isaac people. Now Christians, by definition are to be Isaac people, children of the free woman, because we've received God's promise of salvation through God's work, through God's own fulfillment of his promise. And the problem being addressed here in the text, and that is very close to home in our own lives, is that we have a tendency to fall back into Ishmael religion instead of Isaac sort of relating to God. We know that we've been saved by grace, through faith, and what Jesus did, that it wasn't a work of our own. We all get that. We know we've been saved that way, but then we revert back to this feeling of, now I've got to be good enough. Can I just say, you guys, it's not true? I remember when I first put my faith in Jesus and I realized the grace of God to save me, it was so freeing, but then it, not a lot of time lapsed before I thought that I had this like Superman, big C, and I had to be a super Christian. And I had to continually do well, perform well, to stay in God's good graces. Salvation does not just give us a blank slate that you have to then go out and fill up with good things. No, it removes all the sin and gives us perfect righteousness. We have both redemption freedom from the liability of sin, and adoption. We've been brought into right and good, loving standing before God so that we are both innocent, though we are guilty, and treated excellent, even though we're undeserving. But the problem is that we fall back into trying to relate to God through our own good behavior. If I do good, God will be nice. If I don't, he won't. That is a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. And verse 24 tells us that is enslavement. It's a tragedy to be set free by the cross of Jesus only to be enslaved again. The list of do's and don'ts in the Old Testament, all 613 of them, they became 
pure slavery for the children of Israel. And so correspondingly, anyone who has reduced Christianity down to a list of do's and don'ts is a slave, is a son of Hagar. It's stuck in Ishmael religion. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're feeling that as a Christian, I need to do better, be better, try harder to make God happy with you, unless you get free of that and realize that the gospel has done it all for you, you're always going to be a slave. We need to realize that you have been, you need, we need, I need to realize that we've been identified with Christ. That God loves us like he loves his son. Did you hear that? Let that sink in. God loves you as much as he loves his son. The God of the universe loves each and every one of you as much as he loves his son. Unless you get a hold of that, Unless you really grasp that, you will be enslaved. Church, we must grasp these things. Here's the disconnect. You think that if you do better, do better, do better, there's going to come at some point a freedom. But that's not how slavery works. No matter how good of a slave a slave is, they aren't set free by good slavery. No matter how good a good slave is, they're not set free by good slavery. It's not like a promotion in the workplace when you're a slave. You don't get like, you don't climb the ladder as a slave. You're a slave. In fact, if you're a good slave, you just receive more slavery to do. There's never a promotion out of slavery, church. So you're thinking, I'm going to get to this place where I'm good enough to be free to enjoy God. You'll never get there. You will never get there. If you're trying to relate to God like Ishmael, you'll always be enslaved. Because there's no escape from slavery through slavery. We're only brought out of slavery by being bought out of slavery. We're only brought out of slavery by being bought out of slavery. It's called redemption. Jesus Christ did this on the cross for us. He secured our adoption. We were once slaves, but now we are sons. See, no matter how good you do, God will never be in debt. He'll never be in debt to you. You have no negotiating tool to bring to the table. God will never be in debt to us no matter how well we perform. So trying to relate to God in that Ishmael kind of way is the most ruthless kind of slavery. There's no end to it. There's no thank you at the end of the day. There's no promotion. There's no satisfaction. We've been saved from that. We've been brought out of spiritual slavery and into spiritual freedom, church. Now there is, in the church, always these two types of people. There are the Ishmael people, 
And there are the Isaac people. Always in the church. There are the Christians that are not yet living under grace and that are still feeling they need to perform. And there are those that are living in freedom and under grace. And what Paul is going to tease out next in this historical context is that these two types of people have a hard time getting along. They have a hard time. They butt heads. Verse 29, well, let me read verse 28 first. It says, And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But here in verse 29, this butting of heads, but you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law. Just as Ishmael, the children born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. So he's, Paul's referencing this time when Isaac was being weaned. He's about three years old. Ishmael was in his late teens somewhere. And Ishmael is mocking, dissing Isaac. There was something going on where Ishmael didn't like Isaac. Isaac was a son of promise, and Ishmael was the work of the flesh. Isaac was a free child, and he was a slave. And so he's openly mocking and coming against Isaac. We see it in Genesis chapter 21. What's interesting is that the Bible seems to say that older brother, the older brothers are always going to have a problem with the free younger brothers in Scripture. You ever seen that pattern? Take the story of the prodigal son, for example. It's the younger brother that sinned against the father and asked for his inheritance early and then went out and spent it on prostitutes and drunkenness and loose living and squandered his father's estate away. And then this younger son comes crawling back to the father. And you guys all know the story. It says that the father saw him a long way off and ran to him. And it says that he kissed him. And in the Greek, it says that he kissed him over and over and over and over again. And not only did he kiss him, but he put a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, sandals on his feet, killed a fattened calf, and had a party for him. He had a party for his horribly performing son. You hear that? He had a party for his horribly performing son. The older brother didn't like this. Not at all. The older brother didn't like this. He comes to the dad in the store and he says, Dad, that kid is horrible. He took your inheritance he took your estate and squandered it on prostitutes, but I've been here. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've always been with you. I've always behaved. Why does he get a party? Why is he being treated well? Why does he have a robe and a ring and sandals? And the only possible illusion there could be that the Father does not intend to deal with you according to your failures, but according to his love and his mercy. It's the only possible illusion. 
But those who insist on being ranked according to performance, those that must be identified as good Christians, will always be upset with little brothers. Ishmael will always come against Isaac. In Luke 18, Jesus says this, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Ishmael people will always come against Isaac people. Because people that have not realized the fullness of the truth of the gospel, that haven't realized the degree to which they are accepted because of what Christ did in their stead on the cross, nothing more. The people that don't realize that don't like these other people. And so then not realizing that, not realizing that Christ has done it all, And not sensing and laying hold of our redemption and our adoption and our acceptance. We insist upon being recognized for our efforts. We insist upon being recognized. Just like the older brother in the prodigal story. I've done everything right. Just like the Pharisee in the last story. I do everything right. Look at me. If we fail to recognize and lay hold of the truth of the gospel, we'll be trapped in our need to do everything right and get recognition for it. And the reason that those of you that are like that persecute the Isaacs is because you demand to be recognized. Because human effort always wants recognition. So much so that in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham, after he had Ishmael, came to the Lord and said, Lord, that Ishmael may live before thee. Lord, that Ishmael may live before you. What's he saying there? In other words, isn't Ishmael good enough, God? Lord, look at what I did. We collaborated here. You said I'd be the father of nations, and I got it done. I made it happen. What are you going to do with this son now, God, that he would ever live before you? I'm doing good stuff here, God. Human effort always wants to be recognized. So, church, if you fail to ground your identity, your security, your sense of love and self-worth in the love of God for you and the work of Christ for you, then you'll demand to be recognized by people, hopefully even God. 
And you'll always fall back into needing to perform. Always. It'll be a tendency of your life. You need to perform, if that's the case, because you don't know how to locate yourself otherwise. If you don't perform and you don't get recognition, you don't know how to locate yourself. But Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, will just pulls the rug out from underneath you. Here's what it says. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Just pulls the carpet right out. And not only is that verse true of initial salvation, but it's true of the continuation of salvation. That there can be no boasting within the Christian community. There ought not to be boasting, church. There's no good Christian and bad Christian. No such thing. I'm doing well, you're doing poorly. I'm better than you. It can't exist. The whole book of Galatians is to come against the horror of that. And the remedy is to realize that the ultimate gift of grace that's been given in the work of Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And when we do that, we perceive ourselves differently. We relate to other people differently. All this has tremendous implications on our relationships. And this has been convicting as I've re-looked over this in my own life. What do my relationships around me look like? And what do they reveal? It's in our relationships where we can begin to measure, determine, see, get a glimpse of whether or not we're experiencing living under the grace of God. It's in our relationships. For example... You know you're living under grace when the criticisms of others no longer wrecks you. You know you're living under grace when the criticism of others no longer wrecks you. You're living under grace. Why? You're accepted. You've accepted the grace of God. It's enough for you. The God of the universe radically loves you, and it's enough. You know you're living under grace when the criticism of people doesn't wreck you anymore. Your dad criticized you. Your boss criticized you. Your spouse criticizes you. It's been a destructive thing your, your whole life, but you've been set free. You're not a child of Hagar. You're a child of Sarah, of the free woman. You know you're living under grace when you're okay with being second or third or fourth or even being passed over altogether. You weren't the guy that had the recognition. You weren't the girl that got the preference. You didn't get the promotion. You see, if you're functioning as an Ishmael, as a son of Hagar, these things will kill you. When you're not first and you don't get the position or the preference or the promotion, it kills you. Because for you, you're still trying to locate everything according to your performance. Your God is approval of people. That's your God, the approval of people. 
And so when you don't have it, it wrecks you. When you get the gospel and you realize that you have the approval of God 100%. Amazing, world-creating approval of God through Jesus. You don't need to be first all the time. The gospel enables us to lose, to be passed over, to, to miss out and still be okay because of God's love. Ishmael people will always come against the Isaac people. And so here's what Paul says to do about it in verse 30. This is is the outworking of what do we do about this. But what did the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share inheritance with the free woman's son. Get rid of Ishmael religion-oriented people in your midst. That's gnarly. We're just going to, we're going to start kicking the legalists out. We're just going to do it right now. We're going to take a survey and just kick your butt out if you're a legalist. We're not. As much as we'd like to, we're going to take a more humble approach. And we'll start by casting the Ishmael tendencies out of our own hearts. Let's start with us. Let's start by casting the Ishmael and slave tendencies out of our own hearts. That we would stop saying, oh Lord, that Ishmael, live be- that, Ishmael may- that Ishmael may live before you. We stop seeing God as a collaborator. That we have something to bring to the table as we start relying on our own self. And rather we start relying fully on God what God's done for us in Christ and how he's given us our standing before him. Verse 31 says, So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Identity statement. We are children of the free woman. That is us. Now, having said all of that, if you have an intense desire to do right and good and honor God through and in your behavior, and if your motivation is from a place of deep gratitude because you know you've been accepted, and deep love because you know you've been deeply loved, that's a good thing. And that's a right thing. That ought to be the case. The love of God that we experience in Christ should give us a deep desire to do right, to do good, to honor God in and through our behavior. The law never provides that. Rules cannot do that for us. Love is always more powerful than rules. The best example of this for me is my little boy, Jaira, right? Jaira, he's a mama's boy in the, in the truest sense of the word. Anyone that knows Jaira knows he's a, a mama's boy. And Jaira loves his mommy. He loves his mommy. And his mommy loves him. And so he's always going and trying to serve his mommy. Mommy, can I do this for you? Or mommy, you go ahead. You go sleep. I'll just, I'll, I'll take care of things. <laughs> the other day, my wife had a headache and he's like, it's okay, mommy. I've got it. You go sleep. He loves, he loves, he loves his mommy. And his mommy, oh, 
She loves her son. I, I too, I love my wife. And because I'm in love, in this love affair with her, I, I have an intense desire to be a good man. I want to do right. I want to do good. I want to honor my wife in and through my behavior. Not because I have to, but because I'm in love with her and she's in love with me. Subtle differences, but can revolutionize your walk with the Lord. I think about my kids as well. Again, when I come home from work, my kids never fail to run into my arms and jump yelling, Daddy, Daddy, and expressing their love for me. They never miss it. I think about that love and it makes me want to be a good man because of how much they love me. Even when nobody's looking, they love me. And so I want to do what's right. And that's the way it's meant to be with God, church. That we would have this deep desire because of how we've been loved and been totally accepted to honor him in the way that we live. And those that fail to recognize that and make performance the principle of their lives will always be slaves. You need to break from that, church. The culture has formed that in you. You need to break free by hearing the gospel. That's how we break free, through the hearing of the gospel. When you make grace the the principles of your life, you'll always be free. And then you'll start to get what Augustine said when he said, love God and do what you want to do. You see, if you love God, it's going to radically affect what you want to do. It's the power of love and not the law that will keep us right. Love is always more powerful than rules. What the the rules will do is always leave us longing for an accepting love which will only be found in faith through Jesus. And so there may be some of you today that have never experienced that. We want to give you that opportunity today to respond to that love of God that has been shed abroad for you and you and you. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. If you don't know for certainty of your relational standing with God based on the finished work of Jesus, I encourage you today, make that known to yourself and to everyone. And you will truly be set free. And church, if we live this out, I'm telling you, if we live out this freedom and we, our life is a life of worship as a result, the culture will not know what to do with even 120 of us that live radically free lives in the finished work of Jesus. They will not know what to do. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we pray that you would cause these truths to deeply sink into our hearts, God. Your word says that you search the heart. You know us, God. You know everything about us, God. And so, Lord, where there are tendencies in us to revert back to a performance-based way of dealing with our relational standing with you, would you remind us, God, that it's all done. You don't want us to collaborate. You've done it all. 
And may that God drive us to a place of enjoyment and pleasure of you. Would you realign, God, those things in our lives where they've come out of line? Would you have your way in us? We ask it for your name's sake, for your glory. Amen.